We started tracking um, payment orchestration companies about just around about the pandemic, you know, so March 2020. And we had a database of about five companies. And now today, you know, two and a half years later, we've got 22 on the database. It gives the retailer a greater flexibility to interface with the alternative payments payment methods with different service providers, value add service providers, you know, whether it's DCC or buy now, pay later, and also different acquiring options. And in the future, for consumers to, to use their open banking services through retail. You're listening to Leaders in Payments and Fintech, a podcast brought to you by Edgar Dunn & Company, the global payments and fintech consulting firm. Coming to you from the City of London, I'm your host, Martin Kodrish. And in this series, I'm meeting with leaders and practitioners across the industry to find out what it takes to bridge the gap between strategy and execution. My central question is, how can we commercialize and bring the benefits of ever deeper new technology to market in what continues to be a highly regulated industry? So do join me and please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. And do feel free to make contact and say hello. I welcome any questions, ideas, or suggestions Send me an email or reach out to me on LinkedIn and I look forward to hearing from you. So today's guest is Mark Beresford, who's a director at EDC and leads our retailer practice. In this episode, Mark shares his views and perspective on the topic of payment orchestration, a cutting edge innovation trend that has emerged over the past few years. Let's get straight into it. Welcome to the EDC podcast, Mark. Great to have you here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a bit about who you are and what your role is at Edgar Dunn. My name's Mark Beresford. I'm a director based in the London office of Agadana Company. I actually head up the retail payments, so I look after a variety of retailers. So the, the advantage of a podcast, you don't actually see my grey hairs. And, and so I've had over 30 years of experience in the financial services industry. And I think, you know, by not necessarily by design, but I've been working with retailers and pay tech um, companies that serve retailers. From the majority of that, in fact, the very first retailer I engaged with and worked with was Hamley's, the toy store. And that was back in 1995 when I was working with Gyrobank Merchant Services, which is actually a UK acquirer. It's now part of Elevon. Fantastic. And so what's your definition of a retailer? Just just curious what how you define a retailer. Good point. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about omnichannel retailers and the definition of omnichannel retailers are it varies from whether you're a grocer or a luxury brand retailer. So we, when we talk about retailers, any retailer serving the consumer, you know, it could be a brand, you know, a Nike or Apple brand serving customers across a multitude of, of channels, you know, whether they are, you know, a point of sale channel in a physical store or an e-commerce website or through social media, Instagram, marketplaces, any any channel, so hence the hence the title Omni. This includes presumably retailers that are offline, you know, physical point of sale as as well as e-commerce retailers and, and platforms. Do you also cover those retailers? We do. Yeah, we quite often are engaged with retailers who are uh, either, you know, grappling with the, the challenges of digitization, more digital touch points, self-service kiosks, point-of-sale devices that are getting more smart. And in fact, the terminology that we use within Egadon is actually point of interaction. 
the point of interaction might not be with a shopping, you know, a checkout like you and I would, would be, you know, buying our Tesco groceries in our conveyor belt and dealing with a shop assistant in scanning all the device, all the, the products. It's not like that now today. I think it's it's very much, very, very fluid. I think some of the fashion brands that have physical locations are, are doing away with the, the physical point of, and it's more interactive. It's more collaborative sale. You know, furniture stores is a, a good example where the shop assistant is actually dealing with you on the sofa, you know, with, you know, with their handheld devices and more face-to-face out in the shop floor. So the, the you know, to, to re- remove the, the friction, the customer experience, enhance the customer experience, that's what retailers are trying to do. So be great to kick off the conversation on orchestration. So I think for the audience who perhaps are not familiar with the term, can you perhaps provide a kind of high level definition of what payment orchestration is? Yeah, I mean, we we started tracking um, payment orchestration companies about just around about the pandemic. Yeah, so March 2020. And we had a database of about five five payment orchestration companies or claiming to be payment orchestration companies. And now today, you know, two and a half years later, we've got 22 on the database. So the definition of payment orchestration is really about, it's about aligning business requests with software applications and coordinating those activities, workflows, services, and data. The the terminology orchestration is, it, it is exactly that. It's, it's, it's determining how those things interact with each other. So, for example, let's take a retail checkout online. It may accept cards. It may accept wallets. It may, you know, do bank transfers, crypto or consumer finance options like buy now, pay later, such with Klarna or Afterpay or whatever. That takes a bit of coordination and a lot of interfaces and connections with third parties. For the retailer to do that, that has got an incredible overhead of IT burden and labor intensive activity to make sure that all runs. You'd be surprised to know that a lot of retailers, you know, some of the larger, larger retailers out there operating in international on an international basis, it's extremely complicated. And so payment orchestration promises to buy that. So payment orchestration is is effectively a layer. I would describe it as a layer between the merchant, the merchant's activity. So they they focus on what they do, marketing and you know public, you know, selling their products and, and marketing those products and, and capturing customers. That's their focus. That's the, imagine that as the front office or the front, the floor, the floor, floor, the shop floor, I should say. And then the the middle layer is really this orchestration layer that coordinates the activities, the transactions, the interactions with the point of interaction, as as I mentioned earlier, with all those different third parties. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I suppose one key takeaway already there is that payment acceptance has become quite a complex activity from a, from a merchant point of view. I mean, just just how, I mean, you've already provided some examples, but, but just how challenging has accepting payments become online, would you say? It's not, it's not just online. I think, you know, retailers, have, have, they've realised that, that 
the traditional sales funnel, you know, from browsers to buyers, no longer exists. You know, the customer journey is a lot more complicated. Customers interact with retailers and brands in very, very different ways. There's many, many different touch points. It's not just the point of sale in, in the store. It could be an electronic device within the store, a touch screen or whatever. So those points of interactions could be in-store, online, through mobile, through an app, you know, a store app, a brand app, a social media, marketplaces, self-service kiosks, and so on. So all these different touch points are coming into play. Even your car could be a point of interaction, you know, where you, you know, you result in a purchase of a, I don't know, a coffee or, or a charge of the electricity charge of your EV vehicle. You know, that's that's the way it's going. And and that's the challenge that a lot of retailers are, are having is that complexity. Right. So what is the promise of, of payment orchestration? Is it is it about simplification? I mean, when you really bottom it out, is, is, is that what we're talking about? You know, how exactly would you describe the value that orchestration creates for a merchant? I think you're right. I think I think in a word it is about simplification. It's a little, just to go a little bit further than that, let's take a step back. If you go back 20 odd years, if you look at the use of, you know, particularly online, it used to be, you know, cards. Cards are the predominant method. But as we've, as, as e-commerce has grown over the last 20 years, alternative payment methods, or I like to call them appropriate pay, payment methods, because they're appropriate for the consumer. You know, some consumers don't have cards. They don't have access to bank accounts. So they use a wallet or an alternative form of payment. So 20 years ago, the, the proportion of alternative payments, alternative payment methods used to be about 4 or 5%, really small of the digital payments. Today, it's over 40%. And there's hundreds of them, literally hundreds of these alternative payments. So at the end of the day, a retailer needs to make two, two connections, you know, a technical connection and a financial connection, you know, i.e. a connection to a bank. In order to fulfill those two things, there's, you know, what we've seen over the last, with the growth of e-commerce, you know, APMs have grown. There's more of them. Of them. There's more connections. There's more interaction. E-commerce has grown in, it, in, it, in itself. So there's more connections, more growth. And retailers have expanded geographically. They're offering their services on an international basis. So hence, there's more connections, more growth. So with all these connections, literally hundreds of these connections, a retailer finds it really, really, really challenging to, to really keep up with a, effectively a spaghetti mess in their back-end systems, in their IT, and their labour-intensive to keep them up to date, keep them working and keep them running. And those interfaces are problematic. Now, what's happened in the last 10 years, these connections, you know, I'd say that describe these technical connections and these financial connections have actually been bundled together in full stack PSPs or payment service providers. So these full stack providers such as IS, WorldPay and Worldline and JP Morgan Merchant Services, Stripe, Adyen, they're full stack providers and they're offering a one-stop shop to retailers. And that, that look, it sounds great. Effectively, your payment acceptance, your gateway and your processing of the acquiring of the and the handling of the money is all in one single offering. Now that's great. And a lot of retailers have bought into that, but it's not necessarily the most cost-effective. And I think what payment orchestration does 
is allow it effectively unbundles, it almost reverses what's happened in the last 10 years, unbundles the connect the technical connectivity and the and the handling of the of the money. And I think that unbundling helps retailers to better organize and make their operation more efficient around customer, you know, conversion, conversion rates, you know, decline transactions, making sure that transactions are more more likely to be approved and greater greater scope of, of acceptance. Now we'll we'll get into the I'm sure we'll get into the detail what, what payment orchestration platform is does in a little bit later. Well, I was about to about to ask. Is it, so, is does it allow a merchant to route transaction in a proactive manner to a payment provider of choice, based on criteria that they can set and manage? Is 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 that part of the proposition of orchestration? It is. It's it's meant to be plug and play with these application programming interfaces. These interfaces that they, they the payment orchestration platform handles all that. And a set of rules are defined in either in collaboration with the payment orchestration platform. They may have canned, you know, rules and templates to, to apply to the retailer or the retailer sets the rules themselves. But it gives the retailer a greater flexibility to interface with the alternative payments, payment methods with different service providers, value add service providers, you know, whether it's DCC or buy now, pay later and also different acquiring options. And in the future, the expectation that open banking, bank, uh, greater you know, open banking accessibility for consumers to, to use their open banking services through retail. Mm. So you mentioned the, the database earlier on and the, 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 the sort of the provider landscape of orchestration players. Before we, we go, go on to that topic, just some thoughts on actually developing orchestration capabilities internally is it, are you seeing some merchants doing this or what are the pros and cons of, of that approach compared to working with a third party yeah it's interesting if you you know even before the terminology payment orchestration came about you know maybe years and years before maybe decades retailers airlines hotel operators car rentals you know operating you know, gaming operators operating on a global scale, had to do a lot of this in-house, you know, to, to interact with these different providers, these service providers, you know, the likes of IKEA, Accor Hotels, um, Avis, Betfair, are just a few examples that have built payment orchestration platforms in-house and created that connectivity. It takes a lot of in- investment and standardization. And I think, you know, if they were developed five, 10 years ago, you could, arguably they are considered to be legacy platforms. But those in-house platforms, you know, are obviously serving a purpose. There's some cases where they've actually gone out now to payment orchestration platforms and those payment orchestration platforms have taken over those connections. And they, you know, from having 100 connections, suddenly they've become, they've got now 300 connections because they've, you know, outsourced the, from the retailer, they've you know operating those connections and managing those interfaces with those different service providers themselves, and so therefore we're expecting to see more you know cloud-based payments or service you know offerings from these services. That more thought leadership around a lot of lessons learned over the last 10, 20 years 
And I think that's being applied into the payment orchestration platforms. So in terms of the, the landscape, when we look at the landscape of, of, of payment orchestration providers, you mentioned there were 20 or odd that you, you're currently tracking. I'm just curious, how would you characterize the sort of those vendors in terms of how they, their points of differentiation? What are the other are sort of like notable different models or go-to-market approaches? How do yeah. they differ in terms of what they offer? Well, we've talked about the in-house, you know, model which is obviously the 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 real competitor (laughs) to the payment orchestration platforms but there's probably two others so in total there's three ways of implementing a payment orchestration platform there's the you know we talked about the in-house there's probably a hybrid sort of solution which is a kind of a, a combination and we've seen a few examples that full stack acquirers are offering this smart routing or dynamic routing services talk about it stripe talk about it in fact some acquirers that pay you have bought payment orchestration platforms and bought them in-house so they've bought them closer you know checkout.com bought process out ppro is is another another example so there's kind of a mixed breed of kind of like you're kind of a you've got a foot in both camps you're an acquirer and a payment orchestration platform so there's there's that hybrid model the database that we're tracking, and we've got currently got 22 providers on the database right across the, the globe, they are the agnostic payment orchestration platforms. They're not, and I think a true meaning of a payment orchestration platform is, is to be agnostic. You're agnostic to the merchant acquirer. So that you're divorced from the handling of the money, the processing, the clearing and settlement, settlement of the money. So you're, you're, you're separate to that. Does that, does that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the, 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 that's very interesting too, that the hybrid model and the agnostic model, and, and in your view, the the agnostic model is really the, the kind of the true definition of payment orchestration, whereas the hybrid model possibly is a bit compromised. I mean, how can you really necessarily root uh, if you're a full stack provider? It kind of doesn't hang, hang together. Would you, would you agree with that? I mean, if you look at the agnostic players, I mean, just to put this into context, I mean, these are quite young companies. The average mm-hmm. age, you know, is seven years old. You know, these are quite young, you know, startup companies. The revenues are pretty small. Where we, we've looked at the investment and it's in the region of 300 to 400 million right across the board. I mean, of the ones that we know about. So there's an average of about 30, 40 million investment into, into, into these businesses. Whether they're making money is debatable. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, one of the largest investments in, into one of these providers was in the region of 81 million. So, you know, private equity are, are paying attention to this sector. There's a, a number of, you know, initial venture capital, initial seed funding venture is being played as private private companies. There's about 10 of them on the, on the list of about 22 that we don't know where, the, you know, whether they're going to supply, su- survive, you know. And I think we'll come on to that a little bit later on. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So when we, if you kind of define a true orchestration platform as being agnostic and independent and uh, et cetera, and often young and, and pre-revenue or, or certainly pre-profit, I mean, does that is that model, given the kind of, you know, the economic downturn that we're now facing, is that model sustainable? I mean, let me answer that in two ways. I mean, from a retailer's point of view, they, they're probably, you know, with a 
economic downturn, they're probably looking at cost. <laughs> Retailers are pretty good at that generally. And it's funny, really, because if you look, we work with quite a few luxury brands. They actually perform relatively well in the economic downturn. It's the general mass market retail that has been slow to react to the importance of omnichannel that we talked about earlier and place payments in the center of the customer journey. Mm-hmm. I think those types of retailers, you know, you just look at the UK alone. I believe if you look since the pandemic, it's about 95 retailers that have ceased business. They've gone out of business, you know, Debenhams, Made.com, Eve Beds, Sofa Workshop, even Germany is suffering you know, with Karstadt. I think they've gone out of business three times <laughs> in the last three years. And we're all familiar with Toys R Us in, in the US. So I think these businesses have been slow to react to, to e-commerce and, and omni-channel and, the, and how the customer journey is changing and adapting to these new payment models and payment methods. Payment orchestration, you know, in an economic downturn, at the moment it's growth, growth, growth. And a degree of land grab, you know, some of these payment orchestrations uh, companies are approaching merchants and just just literally just taking all the interfaces that the merchant has built and bundling them into the payment orchestration platform. So hence they're sort of fast tracking those interfaces and and offloading the the burden from the, the, the retailer and operating it as a service for the retailer. So I think... It's an opportunity for retailers to save money and, and be more efficient, effective and, and, and convert more customers to, 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 to transact, which is which is, makes sense. But for the payment orchestration companies, I think it's going to be a challenging time. You know, when that funding runs out, there's going to be probably a lot of M&A over the next three, five years. And that's an interesting point, though, isn't it? If, if, if the potential exit for a payment orchestration platform is an M&A deal at some point due to perhaps lack of funding, et cetera. And what, what is the, how does that impact their, their proposition, which we said by definition it requires them to be agnostic and independent. So if they then eventually get acquired by a larger, you know, full stack PSP, what have you, does that not then change their very, their positioning in the marketplace and their proposition? It does. I mean, in fact, this year we've seen Payoneer, which, which we know is a a full service provider, payment service provider, but they they bought a payment orchestration platform, a German one, I think, uh, a few years ago called Opt, and they this year they've they've publicly announced that they're exiting the payment orchestration platform business. You know they're not taking on new merchants, so I think the agnostic players will continue to be agnostic. There's still demand for that. There's no doubt. If they're going to get snapped up by the full stack providers, they might just disappear, wither away. I mean. Check out buying process out. I mean, we've heard in the market that process out as an orchestration platform is being offered for free. You know, there's no value there. Right. It's it, that's that's. I'm, I'm very that's, curious to see what happens though in terms for the the, the agnostic players who who yeah. remain truly agnostic and independent. You know, to, to what extent they can actually survive. It's going to be a long scale term. Economy. It's going to definitely be scale economies. So with all the hundreds of interfaces. You know, I talked about the the the, the IT burden of, of maintaining mm. those interfaces. Although they they claim to be standardised, but they are always evolving. They're changing every six months. So you have to keep them up to date. You have to change, test them, relaunch them. That's IT intensive. If you can consolidate that with two or three agnostic players, 
and bring together and get more global coverage, then, mm. then the scale economy is there. And is there, I mean, we spoke about the, diff, the the merchant situation. What is the sweet spot in terms of merchant vertical? Or is there a sweet spot in terms of merchant vertical for orchestration? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, a quintessentially nationalistic UK retailer operating in the UK, you've got one acquiring relationship and you hardly sell anything in, in other markets, then, then you know, payment orchestration is is not, not the solution for you. If you're multi-brand international business operating in you know dozens and dozens of countries and you are serving different types of consumers using different types of payment methods then a payment orchestration definitely works for you it, it makes perfect sense and 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 that's why a lot of a lot of this has been done in-house over the over the years it's only in the last few years, you know, it's a relatively new proposition as a standard offering. And uh, I think you mentioned some good examples earlier on in terms of in-house build in the travel sector, travel vertical. Is, is that is that one of the verticals where we see some traction in terms of orchestration? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think orchestration has yet found its niche in terms of the verticals. I think it, it's, it makes sense in retail, general retail makes in travel, uh, hospitality, you know, right, you know, hotels, international hotels operating you know, many, many different brands in different countries. It makes perfect sense. That's really interesting, Mark, about you know, how you think the economic downturn is going to impact the, the, the orchestration space. I mean, in, just reflecting on your own sort of background in, in, in this business and the benefit of hindsight and having sort of worked through a number of recessions, et cetera. What do you think are some of the sort of best practices that fintech leaders, orchestration leaders should really focus or pay attention to to try and navigate through this this period, this downturn? Yeah, I mean, it's good. It's a good question. I think there's two ways of answering it. I mean, from a from a fintech leader and the, and the people that we've met within the payment orchestration platform provider we we've been particularly impressed by their ability to to be agile uh, bring things to speed to market has been very very important as super important those fintech leaders managing those companies you know very very um dynamically i think there's four we've found four best practices of a payment orchestration platform and those are largely around, you know, the smart routing, intelligent routing that you talked about. I think retailers find that very, very challenging, something that they can't do themselves or when they have tried to do it, it's limited. Secondly, as you know, you know, with strong customer authentication, 3DS, security and tokenization, all those issues around that are problematic for retailers and, and stumbling blocks. They they bring in friction in the process. If a payment orchestration platform can take that away from the retailer and be compliant to, to deal with that, then that's uh, extremely of great value. Thirdly, and this is the challenging one that we always come up with, and retailers are always asking us about the return on investment, you know, what is the positive return on investment? How are the payment orchestration platforms going to make money? You know, what is the cost they're taking out of the equation? How are they going to transfer and add value and, and change the service for the better? 
that's, you know, from provider to provider, it differs so much. And, and lastly, you've got to bear in mind that payment orchestration platforms are only a technical solution. As I said earlier, it's, it's unbundling the financial, contractual, commercial arrangement that you would have with the acquirer. So that's not never going to go away. That's, that's, uh, that's still a challenge. And that, I guess that's where the full stack providers have got some degree of a, advantage there. Okay, interesting. That's some really interesting thoughts there to finish off with. So, you know, zooming out a tiny bit, just to reflect on 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 the, the overall picture in terms of payments and fintechs. I mean, are we still, you know, bullish on 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 the opportunities going forward? I think it's an interesting space in terms of retail payments. I think consumers are pretty fickle. They're changing, you know, and they're responding to different propositions, and they're using alternative forms of payment. We've seen that as pretty clear. And those alternative forms of payment are not going to be static. They're going to be new ones coming along down the road, new ones in the future. You know, just look at buy now, pay later. Look, that's been one of the fastest alternative payment method that has grown in the last few years. Retailers are wanting to capture new markets. They have to be dynamic just as much. They can't do it on their own. So I, I believe payment orchestration is around to stay. It's it's got it's got legs. It's early days. It's true. It's it's pioneering stuff at the moment, but it's it's going to it's going to stick around. There's okay. a there's a space as a demand for it. Interesting. Great. Thank you very much, Mark, for your time today. Just to finish off, perhaps you can just share with the listeners how they can get in, in touch with you. Well, I'll definitely through our websites and LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. To hear more interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify or your podcast platform of choice. It helps and means a lot. Also, I welcome any questions, ideas or suggestions, so feel free to make contact and say hello. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or at edgardunn.com. You can send me a message there or you can email me on martin.coderish at edgardunn.com. I look forward to hearing from you and I will see you next time.